Good afternoon. We are coming to the end of a long marathon of talks over the last three days, and it's exciting <coughs> to have such an illustrious duo speaking to us for the last session. <coughs> um, can you? Yeah, <coughs> thank you. Adrian Edwards and uh, Adam Pendleton will discuss what possible abstractions in uh, radical practice means. And uh, for these conversations, they will explore abstractions as a platform for revolutionary possibilities in art and politics through the practice of artist Adam Pendleton. And the conversation will, I think, center around Adam's art over the past two years, from his installation for the Belgian Pavilion at the 2015 Venice Biennial to his recent suite of paintings entitled, Untitled, Brackets, A Victim of American Democracy. Adrian Edwards is a curator at Performa and curator at large at the Walker Art Center and a PhD candidate in performance studies at New York University. Her scholarly and curatorial work focuses on artists of the African diaspora and the global south, including the Blackness in Abstraction exhibition for Pace Gallery and 154 Performs for us here in New York. For performer, Adrian has curated programs, projects, and productions with a wide range of artists. At the Walker Art Center, she has worked within the visual arts department, developing and implementing artist projects and exhibitions, and expanding interdisciplinary scholarship and research. We are very honored and pleased to have Adrian as a steady collaborator since the last two years in the context of 154 Performs, which is a collaboration between 154 and Performa and also as a regular speaker in forum. It's family business. Adam Pendleton is a conceptual artist known for his multidisciplinary practice, which includes painting, publishing, collage, video, and performance. He often engages with language, both figuratively and literally, to address the recontextualization of history. Adam's work has been widely exhibited. Recent project in projects include participation in the 11th Kwanju Biennial and a traveling solo exhibition entitled Adam Pendleton, Becoming Imperceptible, presented at the Contemporary Art Center New Orleans, Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver, and Museum of Contemporary Art Cleveland. I am very pleased to listen to you. So is the audience. Thank you. Thank you, Koyo. Thank you. Um, I do want to say thank you to my sister Koyo, who is, you know, it is always a pleasure, always. Thank you for having me be a part of this with you. And thank you to Gabriella, wherever she is, because she really, like, makes this happen in such a profound way. And so much gratitude to her as well. Um, and to the fair, it's a really special convening, I think, that um, the spirit of it is so emblematic of, I think, what um, so much of my work is about, 
um, so much of what my life is about. And I think also for you, Adam, so it's especially meaningful um, to have this conversation here. So where to start? I mean, I think when we discussed what might be interesting is in some ways entirely reflective of the fact that um, I have had the pleasure of thinking and writing in many ways, both alongside Adam and with him. <laughs> so it, but we rarely have the chance to have a conversation because we're always so in something. Right, yes. Yeah. It's true. So the chance to kind of step back from it and in a way mark what's happened over the last two years. And I mean, in many ways, literally spot on, it's been two years. Well, you know, that's true, isn't it? I never actually thought of it that way, but it's true. And so Adam was like making this work that uh, for the Belgian Pavilion, um, for the mm. Venice Biennale that was in 2015, and you were talking about it and da 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 da, and, and then like I knew what you were doing, mm. but you know, I still, I still <coughs> want to say that nothing hit me the way it hit me when I got off the Vaporetto at the Giardini and walked up the Giardini, and I saw the flag, and it was a Black Lives Matter flag, standing, flowing, doing its thing on the Belgians, right? Yeah. And, and then the sight line continued, so that was the first, like you look down the Giardini, that was there, and then the straight down the middle way was Blood Bruise Blues, I think, was Glenn Ligon's Neon, and then hanging underneath that was Oscar Murillo's, um, he calls them flags, I call them masks, because you have to remember at the time that uh, this was all going on in 2015, that there was this, the, the kind of first marking of the mass um, immigration out of the Middle East and in particular Africa into Europe. So there was like panic, right? The chaos around the notion of contagion that was so prevalent then and like even more so now. And I think we're dealing with the political repercussions of all of that. Um, although it seems like the French haven't lost their minds, so that's good. That's good. Um, and so it's really interesting that I just wanted to mark that because I think the stakes of what you had done, like it's one thing for us to be talking about it or me to be in your studio mm. or we're at dinner, it's and you talk about I'm going to do this thing. There's another thing to actually see it and to not only see it but to feel it and to understand the stakes of it differently in that context. So do you want to talk about why it was in 2015 important to you to make clear somehow what has, I think, been something you've been dedicated, that your work has been dedicated to for so long? Mm. But to, to make it plain, perhaps. Yeah. I'm gonna, before I talk about that, I'm gonna go back. I don't know if you remember, but when I, when I was invited to be a part of the Belgian pavilion, I, I got the email and I said, oh, I don't know if I wanna do this. What is this? 
you know. You were dismissive. <laughs> I was, I you were a bit I even said, more I hardcore than that. Yeah, but yeah. I, 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 for some reason, I thought it was something I, I could um, <laughs> ignore, mm-hmm. <laughs> not, not, res- not respond to. Anyway, I did, and I'm, I'm glad that I did for the simple fact that it, it gave a, a physical sight to put forth visually and conceptually ideas that had been moving inside and outside of the work for, I don't know, maybe two years prior to the invitation. And that had, in a strange way, manifested itself first, most explicitly in a text that I delivered in MoMA's Founders Room for the symposium event. And that was kind of the first moment where the protest movement or the movement that is referred to as Black Lives Matter found itself within my work, but in relationship to this concept of Black Dada. So Im- immediately the, the language the water was troubled. Mm -hmm. It was a troubled situation. It wasn't just Black Lives Matter, but it was a kind of a a critical inquiry uh, into what that could mean, the potential that could, could the potential that was behind the, the language and also the movement, the idea of protest, the idea of demanding recognition in potentially a sophisticated and poetic fashion. I mean, the maneuver really made me think in a lot of ways about um, Du Bois, right? Because in some ways, there, I, I keep going back, and the, Dada, the Black Dada Reader has just been published, uh, not yet available in the States, but I was re- looking at it and reading it and thinking a lot about it in relationship to Du Bois, and in particular the fact that it's the first text of the assembly of texts that you put together. And I was trying to, r- and, and that, that, that moment of you emerging with essentially, let's just say three bodies of work right, even though all of them sit under this banner of Black Dada. Mm-hmm. This is the way I've understood it. So there's Black Dada paintings. This is, I'm, I'm doing the pre-15 moment. Black Dada paintings, there's um, systems of display, there's video works, right? And there was something about a kind of, um, and then the fragments, right? That there were these kind of fragments of references in terms of the language poets, but also different theorists like Deleuze, uh, which is a lovely both share, and also then Du Bois. But I kept going back to the fact that with Du Bois, he'd had this kind of, and, and it's the souls of black folks mm. is the yes, text that is. said is in the reader. But there's this moment. Well, of our, sp- of our spiritual strivings. Okay. But that's the section from Souls of Black Folk, right? Isn't that a chapter? Anyway, I'm pretty sure. I think it is. Doesn't Doesn't matter. matter, Doesn't matter. So um, 
So it's really funny because I was really kind of thinking about the autobiographical impulse and, and how Du Bois had had this whole moment as a scholar and an activist and even a curator, right? And it was like something is not gelling, right? Something is kind of, there's a, I'm not quite achieving what I thought I would achieve after 50 years of doing this thing. And what he does in 1948 is he turns and he writes Dusk of Dawn, mm. the, the autobiography mm. of a concept of race. And for me, um, in the course of my PhD studies, I think it was almost somehow a setup mm. for myself because I was like, oh, okay, if I want to understand the systemic implications, I'm getting to the Black Lives Matter flag, but if I want to understand the implications of what this thing is that I happen to have a relation, a daily intimacy with, that we call race, right? This thing of blackness. How can I, I, I fundamentally had to understand it as a construct while knowing and pushing myself. It's like I both believed it and I didn't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It was like I needed to acknowledge it as a systematic institutional force and structure, but I also, and therefore maybe create some distance in my own thinking and in the way that I could te textualize what artists like yourself were doing. Um, and it was really kind of, I both, and I've only begun to really grapple with this, I both believed it and I both didn't. Mm. You know, I also did not. I was like somehow tripping myself up to see how it could hold. You know, that it's interesting because in a strange way for me to mobilize the language Black Lives Matter within the space of my own work was a way for me to have it no longer be personal. It was a way for me to be able to look at it systematically, mm -hmm. surgically, strategically, mm -hmm. and sort of see what it could do as material. Mm -hmm. Where if I hadn't, you know, brought it into the space of my work, it it would have, you know, been this a, a much more sort of personal kind of polit, you know, political kind of. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Okay. But once it was in my work, it 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 was material. It is material. Mm -hmm. But of course that's not necessarily how someone else would experience it when you're walking, you know, through the pavilions that make up the Venice Biennial and you see this flag hanging off of the Belgian pavilion, a country with such a, a brutal colonial past, and you have this flag hanging. And you know the funny thing was it, it wasn't a, a, a large flag. Mm -hmm. You could miss it. It was really m much more like punctuation than bombast. Mm -hmm. And what's strange is the other things you referenced, the Glen Ligon blood bruise, what blues, and the Oscar Murillo black flags. I, I, I think of them as, you think of them as masks, I think of them as flags. Yeah. But this, Strangely enough, this flag was maybe four feet wide and three feet tall, was actually sort of the simplest sort of representation of 
theories or ideas of blackness as they related, but at the same time, the most explicit. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of straddling things in in a strange way. It was explicit, but it was also, there was a willingness for it to disappear at mm-hmm. the same time. Mm-hmm. But then when you make your way into the pavilion, I think it became imme- immediate cli- immediately clear from a visual standpoint, at least, that what stakes were involved mm-hmm. and how the strategies uh, could be uh, sort of push- pushed mm-hmm. conceptually, um, but also within the space of of my work, how this language could kind of shape these gestures that I had been working on for, at that time, at l- six years at least, mm-hmm. when you refer to the system of display, which are mirror and glass works that combined an image with an abbreviated representation of a single word. Mm-hmm. So th- that was a project that I started in about 2009. Mm-hmm. And then you had the Andapandance pieces, which was also an earlier project, and the Black Dada paintings, which were from 2008. So in a strange way, the only new work in the installation in Venice were the wall works. Mm -hmm. And they became a kind of a stage or a foundation that connected all of these disparate objects and ideas. So will you talk about, because this was the first wall work, is what we're These were the first here. wall works, yes. And uh, they're wallpaper-like? How do you... They, you know, they're, they are not, I mean they're wallpaper-like in the sense that they're applied directly to the wall. Mm-hmm. They're sort of the opposite of wallpaper because they do not repeat. Mm-hmm. The because I'm installing uh, one of these wall works at the Walker in September, we asked Adam for um, instructions on how to do this. And how many pages is the manual? It's, I think it's fairly extensive. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> and <laughs> you know, the, the reason being because you know there are so many different associations. You know, it's not unusual to walk into any gallery or museum and be presented with a wall graphic. That's not unusual. A portrait of the artist, Mm -hmm. a historical image that's kind of to encourage different associations, what have you. Wallpaper, you know, you have people like Andy Warhol who utilized wallpaper in his work. But I actually am mostly, when I sort of think about what kind of historical reference is most productive in relationship to the wall works, I think of Lewitt's, or Lewitt's wall drawings. And there's quite a difference. So I kind of took his instructions for how the work should be displayed and put them to work for my own work. Although my instructions are actually more extensive than than his now in the end. So will you talk about like what this wall work is composed of in terms of the various images? Because I always interpreted it a bit as, um, I think I've described it to you as almost like the Barnes Foundation mm-hmm. installation is kind of the way that I think about what the force of this 
presentation, um, which kind of becomes this uh, container for all of these different ways in which you work. So I don't know if people can see. I would have to literally go up there and point them. But there's a system of display. This is a huge independence with uh, Holly Selassie. Yes. And then there's above it immediately and over in the left corner is um, now what did you a poster, a poster which is uh, refers back to the black daughter reader right yes so there's essentially three layers you have the wall work and then on top of the wall work you have posters which were based on the black daughter reader and then on top of the posters you have objects paintings system of display independence pieces that are from different series or bodies of work but they're all it, but in this Venice installation things that were sort of primarily viewed separately or sort of they had a, a sense of autonomy mm -hmm. that collapsed in, in, mm -hmm. in this moment and that was sort of for me as was a, I hate to say this but it was a, quite a, a game changer Big time. yeah because it was a, sort of changed the syllogistic logic if you will but between how you know how these objects and ideas spoke to each other but also sort of uh, the theatrical potential mm -hmm. of the encounter of the viewer mm -hmm. with these with these objects it, it, it changed it drastically but see I remember that you were also going to a lot of protests at the time and uh, kind of really deeply um, engaged in what was going on around Black Lives Matter and, and other movements and um, I don't think that there's any accident that this work, or coincidence, that this work begins to take on what I want to call a kind of swarm effect, mm. right? That there's a way in which one needs to retain opacity, but, but to really show up. Mm. <laughs> and not show up with the one thing, <coughs> but to show up with the multiplicity of things. Right, it's like, it's it's um, what does it what are, what does it mean to come thickly? What does it mean to kind of mm. really, uh, and and I mean when I say come thickly, this is a conversation Ellen Gallagher and I've been having, that comes out of a Mob Deep song, right, from like I think 1994 or so. What is it? What are the stakes of of, of literally showing up densely? Mm. And I think you know that's a. A, a great way to put it, to come thickly. And I think that's what I realized while working on the Venice installation, that in order to use the language Black Lives Matter within the space of, I'm trying to get to an image yeah. that shows it, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> we can go back before we go forward. That's, well, the next one, yes, that's fine. To actually use that language within the space of the work, it had to come thickly. Mm -hmm. It had to be fully loaded. It had to exist outside of how it was used in a popular sense. Mm -hmm. It had to be uh, deconstructed and sort of reconfigured and, and, and rethought. The poetics of it had to be what would come first, mm -hmm. in other words. Mm -hmm.
one of the posters up close. Right? Yes. That's a system of display. That's a system of display, yes. I, I was really curious, um, and I wanted you to talk about your sources, because this notion of Tecumthickly is not only about just the layering of the works of art that you've created, but also in terms of references mm -hmm. um, and historical imagery that's combined with text. Um, there's a way in which you, bo you work both with and against conceptualism um, that is really interesting to me. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about so for example, the insertion or working with language, right? Um, but this notion of dematerialization for me has shifted radically. Um, you know, this kind of founding conceit of conceptual art that it's about the dematerialization of the art object. And I wanna argue um, that I think your work so beautifully exemplifies this and it's that the de dematerialization exists elsewhere, right? and that that dematerialization we might be able to place at the feet of the way in which we understand what a concept of race is, right? And that, and the system that propagates it. And then the other might be that in order to dematerialize that, you actually need to thicken the mm. object or the experience of it, right? So that the force so that the relation to materiality shifts entirely. So I'm interested in these independence works, which I know is um, the independence itself mm. is taken from uh, the Congolese uh, independence movement, right? Yes. Well, some of some of them are. You know, I've never thought of it that way. That's such an interesting way to to frame it. This notion of conceptual art and the dimension dematerialization of the art object and because one could say I'm very much so doing the reverse of that mm -hmm. but in a it's sort of the reference that is emptied out mm -hmm. but at the same time becomes fully loaded because you're demanding that it function in a conceptual fashion it in other words it becomes sort of beyond meaning mm -hmm. you know it's sort of it, it it's the reference but that is actually only your point of departure. It's not where you're expected to dwell. And so these images that I end up using, they're both familiar and unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. You know, if, for example, in a piece like this, you, you see this face and this look and you say, oh, I, I, I know this. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've experienced this often. People say, oh, I, I know mm -hmm. this image, which is highly unlikely right. because of where the source is from, but they know the feeling of it. They know mm -hmm. the effect of it. Mm -hmm. So it's true. That's what has been dematerialized is, mm -hmm. is the reference. But the art object itself, the actual thing you experience, the site of engagement, is very physical mm -hmm. and it's, it's fully loaded. Mm -hmm. And the ma material decisions and distinctions and how particular they are, what surface is the image screened on at what scale. Mm -hmm. Because in, a, in one way, it's doing many different things with the same material. Mm -hmm. 
and how does that sort of influence how we read it and position it historically and critically mm -hmm. when we encounter it? Because this is done on... That's done on a mirror-polished stainless steel panel, <laughs> which is, I mean, obviously the total, it, it's the opposite of dematerializing exactly. <laughs> the art object. But you know, of course, though, if we, it's particularly paternalistic, but if we think of someone like LeWitt, mm -hmm. there was, the art object was not dematerialized, you know? No. I mean, they, but it was. They make really have interesting distinctions yeah. between LeWitt and Lepard and the way that they understood what conceptualism right. is. Right. So LeWitt actually does give you, kind of attenuates that point actually yeah. in an interesting way. Well, I don't know if the conceptual, and I think this is an ongoing question for me, I don't know if the conceptual artists knew the space that they were opening up theoretically if you applied it to say concepts of race. Mm -hmm. I think they were more concerned with it in formally mm -hmm. and what it meant in regards to sculpture or, or painting or, mm -hmm. or simply just sort of more superficially how does the art object function in the world? Mm -hmm. But how how does the note how do we function as beings marked, identified racialized beings in the world. So if we sort of shift the logic mm -hmm. and we sort of put it on top of something else, it becomes a radically different terrain, you know? Yeah, I think that's why you have people like Lorna Simpson and Glenn kind of making the, Glenn Ligon making the assertion that they're conceptualist in yeah. the 80s and 90s because they recognized something, right, that was about the fact that I'm, I'm living a concept daily, right? So then the whole notion of what conceptual art could be gets completely subverted, right? Yes. That's why this kind of, I mean, it's interesting to think about what happens to certain aesthetics over time. You know, why is it that we could actually think about something like conceptual art as a kind of meta aesthetic of our time? Why does it have such relevance to where you have like choreographers who technically are not in any way related to this aesthetic trajectory <laughs> um, uh, that, that defines these kind of art movements, but yet and still we have con art choreographers calling themselves conceptualists, mm. right? And rightfully so. But then where do you track the qualities of it? You know, how do we yeah. track those qualities? And so I, I'm, that's why I went, I, you know, was thinking about Du Bois in relation to this saying, well, no, there's a concept of beyond all concepts that I've been contending with for so long, right? Mm -hmm. And it's illogical and it's irreconcilable. So then what aesthetics then do we turn to to express it? So then well you can think about the figure of repetition yeah. and fragmentation. I mean, all of this and the reflective, the self-reflexivity that happens with a mirrored panel, right? Sure. You know, it's funny because, of course, being illogical was a f founding principle for LeWitt's conceptualism. <laughs> it's, it's just in being a mystic, a mystic mm -hmm. being. You know, irrational judgments lead to new experiences. Mm -hmm. He wrote that 
in what, 1960 something in sentences on conceptual art. So he's kind of giving us a, an operating manual, mm -hmm. but in a strange way, he doesn't use it. Mm -hmm. And then you have someone like Piper, mm -hmm. who I would argue actually uses it. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> but his concerns were clearly different or what he had to do with his concerns mm -hmm. to make sense of them in relationship to himself mm -hmm. were radically different than what she had to do with a similar list of concerns in relationship to herself and how she was expected to move through the world or move through the world. Mm -hmm. And so this is an installation of a wall work and some other works that um, was at the Contemporary Art Center in New Orleans, a solo show that started there that since toured to the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver and Cleveland. Yes. Right? So where's the photo of you spray painting? Much further ahead. You want to talk about how the wall work shifted from these kind of collaged found images to that you composed into this visual experience to these fragmentations of letters that maybe are letters, maybe are not, maybe gesture towards letter, but give us no language, mm. but seem to be about language. Can you talk about your stutter here? Well, what's, <laughs> so what's interesting is that the, the, just pragmatically speaking, the first wall works that were shown in Venice in 2015, like many gestures that I make started very, it was a very simple kind of idea. Take an image, an image that I had likely used before mm -hmm. somehow, somewhere, and make it very large and make it a surface that you could then hang other works on. Mm -hmm. So a, a kind of framing device. And then as I kept working with this idea of an all over image, a, a total image mm -hmm. that, a total environment or an artwork that would create an environment, I began to deconstruct the the, the source image, one could say, and created these overlapping, these collages. But again, the works themselves don't repeat. The image doesn't repeat, it's always new. It's, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, there's no, there's repetition within the work, but no singular aspect of it repeats. That's, that's the way to articulate that. So here, what you, you end up looking at is yes, something that seems to be about language, but there is, in same time, there is no language. There's only the idea of language or mm -hmm. the sort of the representation of the things that make language letters, mm -hmm. actually. And so this wall work actually utilizes the language, a victim of American democracy, mm -hmm. which refers back to a speech that Malcolm X gave in 1964 called the ballot or the bullet where he more or less says that a, n a nigger is a victim of American democracy, mm -hmm. that you know he's never seen the American dream, he's only seen 
the American nightmare, that he is a, you know, a victim of American democracy. And so here we are again, and I'm bringing this language into the space of my work, but only to render it illegible, so you can't read it. It doesn't say that. The title of the work references that, but that's not what you end up looking at. So I think it ag again becomes about the, the feeling or, or, or the effect or putting the poetic potential first. Yeah. And yeah, I'll stop there actually. Do you, these choices, are they about a kind of um, suspicion or fundamental um, desire to negate representation? I mean, do you think that representation is, already overdetermined. So is this about slipping around that, but or choosing a new set of making a proposition for a new way to think about things that have often been associated with visual representation? It is a proposition, but it's kind of wanting to have everything at once and Greedy. Greedy, yes. In, in other words, it's, it's a suggestion that that's what those who are unmarked have. They have everything at once. You know, they have identity, but no identity. Mm -hmm. They have representation, but no representation. <laughs> they have language, but no language, you mm -hmm. know? So uh, th this is sort of the beauty of abstraction. Mm -hmm. No, it's kind of recognition, but without being confined. Mm -hmm. It's another, you know, it's another word for freedom. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of uh, elegant way to be, to be liberated, mm -hmm. and but still to be able to be critical and direct when and if necessary. And I think that it visually is what the work aims to demand for, but also, of course, uh, from a conceptual standpoint at the same time. I, I've always, I don't think I've ever asked you this, um, but I'm really curious as to, I mean, do you have something against color? <coughs> no, I don't have, no, I use, I, you know, I always tell people I use color beautifully. <laughs> <coughs> just, uh, just a very refined palette, not limited, refined. refined. <laughs> And you know, I of course I used to use color. There was there was a clear moment in the work, 2009, 2010, where I said enough, mm -hmm. and I really did end up limiting my palette to shades of gray, black, and white, and silver, but only through when I use a reflective surface. Mm -hmm. So that's actually that's a lot. That's fully loaded. That's to, that is a lot to have at your disposal as an artist. Yes, so I use color as it is necessary within my, within my work. So Black Dada began in 2008. Yes. And um, I thought it was important that we at least have an image of this work because um, 
it it is kind of these are terrible these are you know it's so funny we do all these artists talk and we pro project all these images you can never see the images can we turn the light <laughs> off of ourselves, please? Put us in the dark. Thank you. That's a bit That's better. better. <laughs> um, <coughs> so when you were talking about LeWitt as a reference yes. earlier, I mean, LeWitt really can be, is also deeply influences this body of work, these paintings. Yes. I mean, what the image that you end up looking at in these abstract paintings are enlarged details of Lewitt's incomplete open cubes. And I think I'm interested in Lewitt's incomplete open cubes from the 70s, both for what they are structurally, but also the language that, it, that attends them, mm -hmm. incomplete, mm -hmm. that they are not finite and fixed, mm -hmm. but there's a sense that they are perpetually becoming. And it's about difference and repetition variation and simu similarities, mm -hmm. uh, kind of deconstructing something that is overly familiar yet strange, mm -hmm. the cube, mm -hmm. the kind of a, uh, a, a building block. What you have a way of um, sitting with an idea and working it through. For a long time. For a long, long, long time. And you never quite let it go. You kind of, there's a function of repetition happening, which is so different than the way we think about seriality. I'm really interested in thinking about the differences between the serial or the series and repetition. Um, James Sneed, an amazing scholar um, coming out of literary studies, who died way too young from AIDS in the 80s, um, wrote a lot about the figure of repetition in black culture. And um, I've been thinking through how you not only sit with an idea, but, and then express it in so many different physical ways, but that it's always circling around a certain set of concerns. Mm. Um, and what is that about for you? Like, what is it, <clears throat> how do you, if to the extent that you do, think about sitting with something and working it out? Um, for some, I think for me, for something to be urgent, we have to take our time with it. The urgency, the more time we take with it, expresses how urgent the concern is. Mm. If we move quickly, how essential could it possibly be? So, and what's generous for me, or the generosity I allow myself within my work is to take my time with it. But it's also managing expectations mm -hmm. inside the work or the, my process and also outside of it, is it takes time to develop something that's worth spending time with. I, I don't personally think you can do that quickly. Mm. I think you begin something quickly, but then to really figure out what it's about or really to get underneath its potential, mm. you really have to dwell there. Mm -hmm. okay. And it's interesting to look at um, 
I wanted to also show the Black Dada work because then the series of paintings that come starting last year yes. are so radically different. Well, there's more. more, more Black Dada in. Yes. Just looks like a, a black square on the screen. There we go. So the the initial um, arrival of, of of these paintings was. Uh, did you think of them as a diptych from the Blackness and Abstraction show at Pace? Mm, no. no, two different paintings that we're beginning to explore this new mode of making paintings for you um, that was quite messy somehow in terms of your process than your previous works, right? Yes. For me, yes. Okay. And these are untitled. Victim of American Democracy. Yes. Oh, that's nice. Yes. Where's that? This is an image of one of the paintings on view at the Baltimore Museum of Art right now. So you did the wall work and then you put the... Yes, for the first time I did a wall, installed a wall work and hung a painting on top. And you're looking at layers and layers and layers of the same thing. Because the collage that I used to make the wall work, I also used to make the image or the collage that becomes the image for the painting. Mm-hmm. So these start like this. Yes, they start very simply with this notion of blackening the white ground mm-hmm. with spray paint by making linear strokes long linear strokes with spray paint with spray paint yes so i remember so i i have a a class i taught at uh, the new school and i took them to adam's studio on our last day of class and they walked in and they said he doesn't make work here <laughs> it was like pr- adam's studio is pristine i mean pristine but there's a secret room that's the mess hall, yes. right? Yes. So. This is the mess hall. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you would spray. I mean, how did you find the gesture? I mean, I just remember. Well, first I made four really bad paintings <laughs> that I unfortunately showed publicly. And I. I disagree, but okay. I sat with them. And I said something, you know, I knew something wasn't working for me. Mm-hmm. And what wasn't working for me is there was no strategy to how I was making them. They were simply, they were as close to expressionistic as I think I could possibly mm-hmm. get. There, there was a kind of strategy st- initially still, that simple notion of blackening the ground with spray paint. Mm-hmm but I didn't really have a illogical, logical way Mm -hmm. of going about doing it. And it took me quite some time to discover within those earlier paintings that there was a stroke there, there was a line 
there was a line that needed to continue. There was a line that needed to be performed. Mm. I often say that the Black Dada paintings are the stage and these untitled paintings are the performance. Mm -hmm. The Black Dada paintings in a way are sort of this, these shades of black, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of a surface that you try to penetrate or rub up against and all you get is, you know, you just sort of blacken yourself. You, mm -hmm. you, know, so you, just, you just get messy. Mm -hmm. Whereas these attempt to articulate something in a more robust and expressive mm -hmm. manner. Uh, but there's also these concerns with painting that are always in play and how, you know, this idea of the figure in the ground, but what does that become when you're mobilizing these concepts through abstraction that is attending to a specific, specific set of concerns. Mm -hmm. And of course, technology becomes one of the hallmarks that even Greenberg himself noted in relation to how abstraction would evolve over time. Um, so it's, it's all there. Is this the clip or the install shot? No, this, this is the install shot. The clip, I don't know if we should go through the whole clip. We're not going to go through the whole one. Okay. Do you want to talk about David Hillary? So one of the things in relation to the paintings that's interesting is that they have historically until the, and David Hillard was 2014? 2011 through 2014. It was shot in 2011. I finished editing the video th three years later in 2014. Arguably, one could say that the untitled Victim of American Democracy paintings began with My Education, a portrait of David Hilliard. Because of course, well, of course, who's David Hilliard? David Hilliard is one of the founding members and of the Black Panther Party and was also the chief of staff. And I shot a video portrait of David in Oakland, California in 2011 because David gives tours, Black Panther tours in Oakland where he shows you important historical sites to the Panthers. But this, I, so I went on a tour and I told David, oh, I'm gonna bring a, a camera and we're gonna record you. And we show up with two cameras, a sound guy, a SUV, a car behind. And he's like, what the hell is going on? I'm like, oh, just do the tour. Don't worry about it. And, but of course, all of this was a ruse to have an intimate conversation with David. Mm -hmm. And I think we shot the video maybe over six hours. And I think it was about three or four hours in where David finally started to talk to me. Mm. And he describes to me his relationship to the politics that the Panthers has exemplified and why he was drawn to it. And he, I mean, but very simply, he says, I came from the South. You know, I wasn't about the women and the children getting beaten. beaten. I wasn't interested in that at all. I mean, that mm. was not <laughs> what, what I would, you know, the marching and the singing and the beating. He's like, that wasn't for me. That's not my thing. <laughs> not my thing. Yeah. 
And uh, so he talks about his relationship with Huey Newton in reading um, The Wretched of the Earth, which he says was like harder than reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. And how you know they were this these group they were these kids you know they were teenagers nineteen twenty what have you mm -hmm. they were young guys, and they were educating each other and mm -hmm. there's a moment in the video uh, where David says the Black Panther Party was everything to me it was my it was my education, mm -hmm. and I ended up titling the piece because that really struck me. Mm -hmm a system of knowledge, how he uh, became knowledgeable or educated himself, that it was a, it, it was a community, a mm -hmm. temporary community, one that was, became decimated later on by state-sanctioned mm -hmm. violence and oppression. And who is David Hilliard today was a question that I wanted to ask, but mm -hmm. sort of David in a symbolic sense of what is a Black Panther today? How, how could I relate to this history from um, a, a personal standpoint? Mm -hmm. And the piece actually, you end up, I was going to include music. Jason Moran, I had asked him to compose music for the piece, but I realized David's voice was the music, his cadence, the way he said words, the way he would linger on certain uh, ideas and also just how fragile David was as a person, you know, and how fragile these ideas and these notions of democracy are. That because they are they are so fragile, they're they're violent, mm -hmm. you know. That that's what we're we're that's we're at mercy and as you know as individuals mm -hmm. at, at at these 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 structures that arguably have no reason to exist, mm -hmm. but they do. And so, in a way, that's what these untitled paintings perform. Mm -hmm. They perform what I can do with my body mm -hmm. and how language can change and shape how my body experiences the world. Mm -hmm. So, yes. And the video with David is the second in now three portraits. It's the second, yes. That you've done. Would yes. you talk a little bit about um, your practice of making portraits um, of people? And why video <coughs> in particular? Well, they, be they initially began with me oddly enough, thinking about Gertrude Stein's textual portraits. But I ended up, so I made a portrait of Lorraine O'Grady, David Hilliard, and most recently of Yvonne Rayner. And I, I've realized now that these subjects, these figures, are really a way of framing everything else that I do and they're more personal than I ever am mm -hmm. in regards to my own work. It, it's very strange for me because I'm not a personal artist, the, but I am at this, I'm deeply personal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it, I think it's a, it's a kind of a conundrum or a contradiction that a lot of people find themselves in who try to uh, take up or uh, 
nurture of conceptual apparatus. Mm. You, you know, you but you you can't disappear. The individual uh, ultimately can never recede completely into the background. You know, but these people become the figure, the figurative representation of me within my own body of work. I kind of put my practice into their hands and uh, it's almost like me saying, David, will you speak for me? Will you say the things that I can't say? Mm -hmm. Lorraine, will you speak for me? Mm -hmm. Say the things that I can't say. You're an 80-year-old African-American conceptual artist mm -hmm. who lived in New York who was a rock critic, <laughs> you know? And who, so, who, you know, rivers rough draft. Yeah. What, what kind of a work is that, mm -hmm. you know, or art is, you know, going to Harlem and staging a parade and putting these frames around African-American mm -hmm. children, men and women, and saying, you're the art, this, this mm -hmm. is the art. And then to Yvonne Rayner, someone who's mm -hmm. 30 years my senior, and how do we talk to each other but there's also a kind in regards to Rainer, there's this also this critical question that I ask in the Black Dada text of what were our conceptual artists doing? Mm -hmm. If they w were, you know, were they in Birmingham? Were the hoses turned on them? <laughs> you know, what what stakes were involved mm -hmm. in in what 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 we do as artists? Mm -hmm. These are uh, images of Dave. This is David actually pointing to a, a bullet uh, yeah. during a, uh, that is still in the rail, the stair railing of a, outside of a house where there, he, he was in a shootout with the, the police. This is the clip. Should we watch yeah. a minute or two? Yeah. yeah. So, so you're gonna make a right at the at the light, and and it's, make a right at the light. We're gonna stop for a minute so I can talk about this location. Uh, there's some 19 of these sites that uh, we do in the um, Black Panther History Tours. Okay, we're at site number one. This is the, where Bobby Seale and Huey Newton worked in this building right here. So stop right here, and that sort of leads us up to where we're going next, where um, there's bloodshed and bloody footprints along the way. And this happened at the location where I'm taking you now. But this is the place where the breakfast programs um, were engendered. So that's where we're heading now. We're going to make a right at the corner. And another right. And then the left. This is the first Black Panther Party office. Not much has changed in this particular area. Uh, in the old days, that store on the corner we used to hang out there. Go to the light and make a left. It all looks the same. So we're gonna get out here and walk right down the street. Oh, do you wanna do what you got shot? Gotta go there, I think. Where he was killed. So it's that next street that goes through. You'll go down that one. Not the next one down. Next one. 
So you want to get out, I'll show you where you always got killed. This, this used to be graffiti right here. It used to be Huey. That, that's the gun, that's his beret. He's holding a shotgun. Hello? Hello? Where'd he go? You can show them because I'm not exactly yeah. sure where they are. Uh, Working with the Panther sort of struck a nerve. It sort of, sort of, you know, shaped me up. All of a sudden, it's like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. That for me, that was the. Um, total summation of all of the, the stuff that I've been looking and witnessing. Foremost was the Watts riots. Then I read this Life magazine with the riots in Newark, and the little boy on the front of the magazine was back blown open, was just so forceful to me. And then when Huey came by and started talking about Malcolm, and he says, that guy is like you, and he's like us. You, you, could, you could be like him. And I said, but I just saw him and I got to get his book, and I got to read it. He's a funny guy with some horn rim glasses, and look real weird, you know, with a bow tie. And like nobody, who's this weird dude? It's Malcolm. But we don't know Muslims from some extraterrestrial. We were saying when he said Muslim, we were saying we hear mullah. So I know that's maybe a word. But we're saying, oh, he's one of those mullah guys. He comes by, Aslam Lincoln. To us, that it sounds like he said, I slung Lincoln. So we're these jokesters, so we say, oh, shit, we slung George Washington. And ah, ha, ha, ha. And so, but then Huey says, he's not saying that. He's saying, Aslam Lincoln. You should go him. He's going to be at the mosque. And he's talking these words, and he's the most articulate, the most powerful example of people like me that I've ever seen. And I said, I could be that guy. I want to be him. To be a part of this movement that, you know, sort of touched my spirit. I, you know, not watching the women and the kids being beaten and, and, and people singing hymns and stuff like that. Not that at all. And rejected it with every fiber in my body. But remember that I came from the South with a strong family who always said that you got to always stand up and you can't take abuse and that. I mean, I came from that. It's part of my, my upbringing. And I meet Huey, who was my childhood friend, who was always this weird guy, always reading books, always we trying to dance and screw girls. He's reciting poetry. I started reading. He gave me these books like The Wretched of the Earth, which was harder than reading the Bible. And I don't know anything about this. He said, I'll teach you. Everything that you don't know, you come to me, and I'll teach you. And how do you define politics? What does that mean? He says, well, it starts with a hungry stomach. <laughs> I understand that. 
the Black Panther Party was all of that for me. You know, it's you know, it's my it's my education. Yeah. Maybe we should go right into the rainbow. Sure. So this is a trailer, a thirty-second trailer of the uh, portrait of Yvonne Rayner. La mer qu'on voit danser le long du golfe clair a des reflets d'argent. La mer. So we're rolling. We're going. Where? We don't know yet. Au ciel d'été. There you go. That's it. 30 seconds. 30 okay. seconds is short. <laughs> oh, you give them nothing. <laughs> nothing. Okay, maybe we'll go to questions, see if there's some questions. Yes. You haven't seen the trailer. No, that trailer <laughs> is not a trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? Anybody? Yeah, I don't, I don't think they have any. Questions going once, twice? There's one. <coughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm wondering about a book you mentioned in your interview with Tom Donovan and Baum back when that was in process. I think it was called Gray, Gray Blue Gray. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have any? Is has that morphed into something else, or is it still in the works? Or? Oh no, Grey Blue Grain has now been, it was such a radical success that it has now been published twice. <laughs> that's a joke, I mean, you no, know, that's the truth, it has been published twice, but there were like 500 copies and now there are another 500 copies. I'll give you a copy. <laughs> Now I'm like embarrassed to ask this question. Um, I was wondering about like this short portrait of David and maybe an expanded question about the Black Panther relationship to people because I just recently read this incredible New Yorker portrait of three Black Panthers that were the longest in solitary confinement of any American prisoner in history, like 40 years in solitary confinement. And they said sort of, together, the three of them, what got them through is still their belief after all those years in the Black Panther Party. So I was just wondering what maybe was so compelling that David revealed to you or talked to you from? What was compelling about what David said? Yeah, in terms of like having such a, you know, something so powerful to get you through something like 40 years of solitary confinement, that that belief in the, in the Panthers. Like what, can you expand on it? He, David didn't, talk about, 
I mean, there wasn't a religious or the kind of uh, fervor for David, at least, and how he spoke about the Panthers. I think it, huh, I think, I don't want to say what the Panthers mean to David now, but I do know that he had, I think a lot of those guys have different, it's, it's complicated, the relationships they have with each other, for example. I think a lot of those friendships fell apart for David. I think what I observed about David was he was very much so trying to make a life for himself that didn't have anything to do with the Black Panthers, but it was something that he couldn't get away from both for practical reasons, just in terms of trying to make a living, and then also for emotional reasons. It was just something in his life that he, he couldn't move on from. But in terms of the politics and if they were life-giving or life-affirming, that, that wasn't something at, at any point in my personal encounter with him, he articulated, actually. I mean, I just would maybe add that if this is something that you're interested in, there's a really fantastic documentary on Netflix about the Panthers that's trending now. I think that's literally the section it's under. Um, and you can hear them speak for themselves about what essentially was a choice that mm. was not that was not a choice, right? Right. They they did what they did because they had to, by any means necessary, right? So, thank you all for coming, Adam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian.